Good to be with you uh, this morning. Just um, a brief word before I pray and we read the scripture passage. I served as a senior pastor for almost 30 years in three different places, and whenever I would make arrangements for a guest preacher to come, uh, the guest would ask, what should I preach? Where are you? And my response always was to say, preach what's encouraging your heart. I mean, preach what is benefiting you at that time or at this particular time. And, um, and so that's, that's actually what I'm doing this morning, is hoping to be an encouragement to you with some things that have been an encouragement to me. At our church, uh, on Sunday evenings through the fall, we've been looking at Psalm 119, and I've found visiting and revisiting Psalm 119 to be tremendously encouraging. So uh, we're looking at the last couple of stanzas of this psalm this morning, um, and I do hope that as we look at them together, it'll be an encouragement to you. So let me pray, uh, and I'll read this passage, Psalm 119, verses 161 to 176, and then we'll think about them for a few minutes. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks for your word. We thank you that um, every word in your word is your word, and every word in your word can be trusted because it is your word. So thank you for this passage, this portion of your word. But Lord, we, we confess, we acknowledge that we need actually more than your word. We need your spirit. We need your spirit to come together with your word so that word and spirit might do the work that they alone can do, bring real understanding and real change to our lives. And so, so grant us this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. 
for I do not forget your commandments. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. In uh, in the summer of 1999, I had a sabbatical leave. I enjoyed a sabbatical leave from my work as senior pastor at St. Paul's PCA Church in Orlando, Florida. And I thought, uh, and really it's the only sabbatical that I've had until last fall when I became semi-retired or retired and then part-time. The church gave me a couple of months to get used to the idea. Um, but in, in the summer of 1999, I thought, I'm going to put this, this break that I have to good use, and I'm going to memorize some extended passages of Scripture. That, that just seemed like a good thing to do. And what did I choose? Psalm 119. Big mistake. Big mistake. Uh, I got about 16 verses into this thing, and I couldn't keep statutes and precepts and ordinances and laws and rules. I couldn't keep them in their proper places. So after 16 verses, I quit. I had 160 to go, but I was done. I just, you know, I couldn't do it. Um, But I do remember reading through the psalm uh, that summer, and I've read through it a number of times, as I'm sure you have uh, across uh, the years of your Christian experience. It's it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's a striking uh, psalm in the way that it's constructed because each of the stanzas employs a Hebrew letter and alliterates each of those verses in each of those stanzas uh, with, that, with that letter. Each begins with the, that particular letter of the alphabet. So the, the author of this thing is a pretty creative person. We don't know uh, who wrote this psalm or exactly when it uh, was written, Um, But it's a very, very intriguing psalm, and it may be that I'm just going to be reminding you of some things uh, this morning, things that I've been reminded of, again, as we've studied this psalm uh, through the fall. Um, But maybe this is new. Maybe this will be an an encouragement to you. And I'd like you to think about, I'd like you to think about the law this morning, the commandments of God. Uh, And I'd like for you to think about them in in three ways. I'd like for you to think about the setting of the law, the context of the law. And then I'd like for you to think about the beauty of the law. And then I'd like you to think about uh, the limits of the law. So the setting, the beauty, and the limits uh, of the law. Verse 161 actually helps us to get at the setting of, uh, of the law or the context in which the law comes to God's people. You hear the psalmist in this verse crying out, as, as he does throughout this psalm, uh, crying out for deliverance. Let, me, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. You hear the psalmist crying out, and what's particularly interesting about this is that he is crying out because he's being persecuted um, by a prince or by princes. Princes persecute me uh, without cause. It's interesting to me that in in Bob's prayer this morning, he he made reference to the the fact that we we live in this culture that in many ways we we don't recognize. 
the psalmist was feeling that. The psalmist was feeling like an alien living in a hostile world. In fact, he uses the word sojourn two times in the psalm, back in verse 19 and back in in verse 54. And again and again, he feels opposed. He, He feels, again, like an alien or like a stranger. Princes persecute me without cause. Earlier in the psalm, he's experienced scorn. That's in verse 22, verse 39. Uh, he's been uh, slandered uh, and, uh, and derided. Uh, verse, uh, verses 23 and, and 85, he's experienced intrigue and conspiracy, and the intensity of all of this has left him feeling small and despised, dried up, verses 25, 28, and 83, brought to tears, Verse 136, angry and despised and disgusted. Verses 53 and 158. The next psalm, Psalm 120, captures as well what the psalmist has been feeling. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Meshach and Kedar were these two regions very, very far removed from home, very far removed from the promised land, from from the place of God's dwelling. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Psalm 119, throughout Psalm 119, and then into Psalm 120, you have these cries of God's people, the cries of the psalmist, the cries for deliverance. And those cries actually echo what is the the archetypal cry of God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, It's the cry of Exodus chapter 3. Why was it that God prompted Moses Uh, to go to Egypt? Why was it that God then sent Moses to Egypt, sent him back, clothed with his power, clothed with his word, uh, sent him to bring deliverance to God's people, people living as aliens in a strange place, persecuted by an even greater prince, Pharaoh? What is it that prompted God to act? Well, it was the people's cry for deliverance. Uh, Their cries for mercy, Exodus 3 Verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. And he does. He comes down to deliver his people. He delivers them through Passover. Right? He, He delivers them through the shedding of the blood of a spotless lamb. And then he sends them on their way, on their way in the direction of the promised land. But not only does he deliver them and send them, but he remains with them. He leads them. He protects them. He dwells among them. He brings them in Exodus 19 to the great mountain and enters into covenant relationship with them. And why does he do this? Again, the, the confessional statement that we read this morning from our standards concerning Christ the Redeemer. And Bob prayed about this after we 
after we made that confession. Why does Jesus come into the world? Why does God send Moses? Because he loves a people. He loves a people. He has fixed his love upon a people. And God brings his Old Testament people, Israel, to the mountain in order to enter into covenant relationship with them. And it's striking, as you read Exodus 19, that though he covers himself on the mountain with the glory cloud, it's a cloud filled with lightning and thunder, and there are warnings that are issued not to touch the mountain, neither human nor beast is to touch the mountain. Even though you see all of that, God tells them that they will be to him a kingdom of priests and a treasured possession a treasured possession to him among all the nations of the earth, they will be his treasure. And they remain that. In effect, God weds Israel to himself, making Israel his bride. He forsakes all others, and he gives himself to Israel. And that's why it's a safe thing for the psalmist and and for us today to make our appeal to God in the midst of our sufferings and discouragements and and feeling like we're aliens living in a strange land. It's even safer for us in a certain sense than it was for Moses because we have the better Moses. We have Jesus who's accomplished a greater deliverance, who has wed us to himself, sealed that relationship not in tablets of stone but by the blood of the cross. That's what you're hearing in this psalm. That's what we see in the scriptures. There is one who hears. The universe is not empty. God is at home in his universe. And he hears the cries of his people. There is one who is more real than what seems real. There is one who is nearer to you and me than what seems to be the nearest thing to you. And it is God, the one who loves us with an always and forever love, hears our cries. He will not let us go. So that's the setting. That's the setting of the giving of the law. It is God seeing his people in distress. It is God coming to his people to deliver them. And that's why the psalmist celebrates, rejoices in the law. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word. 163, I love your law. 164, I rejoice seven times a day for your righteous rules. 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. This has been a theme throughout this psalm. And so again, if you think of the story of the Exodus, there is a pattern that explains why the psalmist feels the way he does about the law. And it begins with deliverance. It begins with deliverance that leads to covenant relationship. And then God, in that covenant relationship, gives his law to his people, gives them a guide for the ordering of their lives. Remember that that Israel has lived in Egypt, a, a pluralistic, polytheistic culture. And pluralism and polytheism can be like a virus that subtly subtly works its way into the fabric of people's thinking. God gives them the law, 
for the reordering of their lives. And God reminds his people in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that this law will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Wise and understanding people. Why? Because of the law, the, the regulations, the guidance, the wisdom that God has given to his people. So God doesn't redeem his people, bring them to himself in love, and then leave them to figure it out on their own. Colleague Ed Norton, in connection with this, said recently, my imaginations will destroy me. If I'm left to myself, my imaginations will destroy me. God doesn't want his people to be destroyed. He doesn't want them walking in darkness. He wants for his people to have light, and that's what his word does, right? Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. Why do you need lamps and lights? To drive away the darkness so that you can see the path. God doesn't want his people to be in darkness. He wants them to have light. The little devotional that I use regularly, it's a devotional Psalter by Dane Ortland. And in his comment on Psalm 119, he says this, we tend to view God's law as inhibiting human, human flourishing. I was thinking about this yesterday. We tend to think of law in the way a six-year-old kid thinks about a seatbelt. My six-year-old grandson and I got into a bit of a spat yesterday because he didn't want to put his seatbelt on. He feels like his seatbelt is, is, is this inhibiting, restricting thing, and it's there for his safety. Right? We tend to think law, Dane Ortman says, as inhibiting human flourishing. The psalm uses different words to describe the law, reflecting the richness of the Torah and the flourishing life into which it brings us. And then Ortland goes on to quote C.S. Lewis, God not only understands, but shares the desire which is at the root of all my evil, the desire for complete and ecstatic happiness. He made me for no other purpose than to enjoy it. But he knows, and I do not, how such happiness can be really and permanently attained. God's law, God's testimonies, embedded in his work in behalf of his people, don't rob us of happiness. Kids, I hope you're hearing that. The ordinances of God don't rob us of happiness. They chart a path in the direction of it. Parents, I hope you're hearing this. Grandparents, I need to hear this. God's law doesn't rob of happiness. It charts a course that leads to the enjoyment of it. Our problem is that we are constantly looking for love in all the wrong places. And so God's law is given as a gift. But the order is critical. The order is critical. It is always deliverance and then law. 
And even when the law exposes our lawlessness, which it does, that too is a gift to help us see where we've strayed from the path and to help us get back on the path. It's always deliverance and then law. God is the redeemer of his people and then their lawgiver. The order is critical. So that's the context, that's the setting, the environment in which the law comes. What about the beauty of the law? Look at the ways in which the psalmist describes the beauty of the law. He finds it to be good. There is goodness in the law of God, in the regulations, the statutes of God. I believe that's what causes the psalmist to stand in awe of the law, verse 161. It's what inclines him to love it, and he loves it over against falsehood, which he abhors and hates, verse 163. It keeps him from stumbling, and so it brings him great peace, verse 165. So many verses in this psalm make reference to the goodness that there is in the law. Verse 18 from this psalm is, is, a, is a verse that shows up in, in our praying as pastors. Before we preach, very often we will say, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. The law is good. Verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. There's, there is a rightness, there is a goodness about the law of God. We know that God has displayed his rightness or his goodness in his creation. Psalm 19 makes reference to this. Romans 1 makes reference to this. There is a way that reality is constructed, and and that reality is an exhibit of the character of God. right? And that's true of of his law. There's a rightness about it, a goodness about it, And actually, to be out of step with it is not only to be out of step with the character of God, but it's to be out of step with the way life works. Apart from from the curse that God has imposed on the world, there, there is a beauty and a harmony that exists between God and his world. There's no dissonance, no disharmony. And even in this God-cursed and sin-plagued world, you still see that order. There is an order there. And the sin is to be out of step with the way things are supposed to be. I have a friend who years ago put this question to me. It's a fascinating question. He said, he said think about this. Is murder wrong because God says it is wrong? Or does God say it is wrong because it is wrong? There's a nuance of difference there, and it's subtle, but it's, it's significant. God doesn't say things are wrong as though they could be anything other than wrong. Right? When God prohibits something, or when he commands something, for example, love of neighbor, right? it's because these things that he, that he prohibits or that he commands are woven into the nature of reality. It's the way works. The psalmist knows this. That's why he calls it good. The law 
actually brings a kind of relief because the law is in keeping with the way life is supposed to be. But he not only sees the goodness of the law, he values it. You see that again and again. You see it in these verses. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. What's he talking about? He's talking about material wealth. He's talking about the kind of thing that David mentions in Psalm 19. Don't you remember those verses? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. More to be desired are they than gold, than even much fine gold, and sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. I think this will register with some of you. When I was 42, I didn't worry so much about market fluctuations. At 72, I think a lot more about market fluctuation. And when my heart is not at rest because of market fluctuations, I find that I'm actually valuing markets more than I am the Word of God and the precepts that God has given me. David says, and the psalmist here says, these things are more precious than riches. More precious than gold, even much fine gold. So the psalmist sees the goodness of the law, and he sees the value in the law. But even more than that, he's in love with it. I mean, this is convicting, isn't it? He's in love with the law. He delights in it. He rejoices in it. Eight times in these 16 verses, the words rejoice and love and praise and delight show up as the psalmist reflects upon the law. The law has gotten deep into his bones. It's become life-giving for him. That's what he wants. He said it earlier, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's verse 11, very early on in the psalm. And you know what begins to happen? What begins to happen is this word lodges itself in our hearts. Lots of things begin to happen. But as the word of God begins to lodge itself in our hearts, these words become our words. These cries become our cries. This language becomes our language. It's prayers and praises and cries and hopes become our prayers and praises and cries and hopes. Sometimes you're out of words, aren't you? You're out of words in your praying. You're in a circumstance you don't know how to pray about. You've lost language for it. Friends, that's when these words become our words, become your words. That's when this language becomes the language that you and I can employ as we cry out to our God and Father. I'm going to be really honest. I'm I'm a preschooler when it comes to to Scripture memory. There are people who are in junior high school and 
Some who are in graduate school when it comes to this. But I'm a preschooler. I'm, I've never been good at it, even going all the way back to the summer of 1999. But I've done it some. And I find that these words that I've memorized across the years have become precious. My, my morning devotional time begins with a short prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. And then there is this, from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your saving help again. And today, this day, grant me a willing spirit to sustain you. And then very often, I'll follow that with words from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let me tell you something. At 72 years of age, I need to be reminded much more than I did at 22 or 42 that the steadfast love of the Lord is for me forever. These words become our words, our prayer language, the vocabulary of our devotional lives. And so you see the psalmist he sees the goodness of the law. He sees the value in the law. But even more than that, he is in love with the law. So that's, that's the beauty of the law. But then there's this last thing, and it's actually stunning to me. I've, I've been thinking about this for weeks. Here's the stunning thing. You come to the end of this psalm, and you're right back where you started. This thing is like a loop, Psalm 119. You've seen loops, picture loops, sound loops. Thing is like a loop. You start, if you read the early verses, you see in the psalmist longing, longing. And as you get deeper into the psalm, you hear him more and more crying out, crying out for deliverance. And those cries of deliverance show up again in these last verses. In six of the concluding verses, there is a plea, there is a cry. Let my cry come before you. Let your hand be ready to help me. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Let my soul live and praise you. And then in verse 176, you have this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. That's stunning. 175 verses extolling the virtues of the law, its, its goodness its value, his love for it. 175 verses, and you get to the end of the psalm and he concludes with this. 
I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. It struck me a couple of weeks ago, I wonder if the Apostle Paul had Psalm 119 in his mind when he wrote chapter 7 of his letter to the Romans, where he affirms that the law is good and it is righteous It is holy. It is deeply spiritual. It teaches. It guides. It instructs. But there is one thing it cannot do. It cannot save you. It cannot save you. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Save your servant. Rescue your servant. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I hope you'll make Psalm 119 a study. That you'll see in it what the psalmist wrote about it. The law, the testimonies of God. Use the law. Let it shape you. Let it be for you what it is supposed to be. But never ask the law to do something for you it is not designed to do. It is not designed to save you. Only God, your Redeemer, can do that. Only Jesus can do that. That's why we come to this table. We come to this table to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. But we come to this table as desperate sinners. We come to this table trusting that the Spirit of Jesus will lift us up into the presence of Jesus, that we might feed upon him in our hearts by faith, be nourished for the journey. Folks, people ask me, when were you saved? And I can give them a date in the past. But consistent with the Scriptures, I also tell them I need to be saved again today. I need Jesus as much today to be my Savior and my Redeemer as I did the first day I trusted. And that's why we come to this table. We come here to feast upon the Jesus we need. And Jesus is the one who came into the world in answer to the plea of the psalmist to seek and to save that which is lost. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, grant to these friends hunger after your Torah, after your law, after your statutes. But, oh God, grant them a deeper hunger, as the psalmist expresses it, for one who would seek us to save us and to bring us ultimately into the full enjoyment of our salvation. Press these things into our hearts, we ask. Thank you.